Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 146, approaching the 150 mark and uh, just shy of our third birthday. How exciting. Thank you so much for joining me each week. Thank you so much. We also just passed not only 1 million downloads on the podcast last month, but also um, over 500 five-star uh, reviews on iTunes. I cannot thank you enough. It is amazing to read the reviews and see how this show is impacting you. And one of my favorite things that I see time and again is, you know, sometimes I hook into the new show that week thinking, gosh, this one's not really going to be for me. And then it ends up being another favorite. Uh, and I always tune in just in case it, it, uh, it resonates. So, uh, what I love about that is that we are a community energized by the diversity in the conversation, the link between not only our health, but the planet's health, the inspiration we take from businesses doing right by people and planet, from forward thinking researchers trying to pave the way for a safer world. It's all linked. It all matters. I think so. And I'm just always so reassured that you guys think so too. So thank you. Um, now today we have uh, an interesting show. Speaking of forward thinkers, Steve Negrin is someone that we found uh, when we were looking for someone who was working in the space of architecture and community building to show us an example of how we could create communities that enrich themselves, um, that uh, enrich our planet and um and an example where perhaps you don't need to feel completely ostracized, cut off and go live in a field on a hippie commune to do living right by people and planet um, in, in a modern way. And we found Steve's work and it was really, really exciting. So um, he's most passionate about biophilia, which is the hypothesis that people have an innate dependency to seek connections with nature and placemaking, creating a place where people can thrive and live their most well-lived life. He's also a huge fan of fresh food. He has a super, super strong uh, hospitality background, so I was interested in that, having come from hospitality myself. So fearing the urban sprawl in the year 2000, Steve led the effort to create the um, Chattahoochee Hills Country Alliance to bring together landowners, developers, and conservationists and find a mutually agreed upon solution of balanced growth for 40,000 acres on the edge of Atlanta in the States. So this effort resulted in the largest land use change in the metro area's recent history and compared to the 15-county metro Atlanta Atlanta's model over the last three decades, this land plan provides for 20% more housing, get this, while saving 70% of the land for agriculture and recreation. How exciting is that to know that that's possible? We all think we need to live in these uh, highly built up dense concrete jungles to fit everybody in. And for me, this is an amazing counter argument, uh, just as the counter argument of regenerative ag agriculture dispels the myth that we need 
you know, um, monoculture, field after field and factory farming to feed everybody. We do not. So I love, love, love what Steve and his cohort have done because what they've created is incredible. So in 2004, the Negrins began development of Seren B, the community to demonstrate these concepts. The result is reminiscent of century-old communities connected to current technology. So what I love about that, again, is this idea that we don't have to ostracize ourselves from what's going on in the modern world. We can actually just be much smarter about how we build communities to uh, ensure that we still have to run into our neighbor and have a chat and borrow the milk and, you know, all the old school things. Um, And there's some really interesting statistics uh, that Steve shares over today's interview about how that community has played out. Before I hook into that conversation and let you hear all about Steve's story, I just wanted to share with you that this month, the month of July, we have uh, a really exciting uh, offer for you from the wonderful Tracy Bailey and her team at Biome. Tracy founded Biome, which is one of my favorite online um, eco stores to recommend people to. She founded in 2003, so she's one heck of a pioneer in this space. It is the leading zero waste, toxin free, ethical eco store. They have a huge focus as uh, champions of. Um, uh, awareness around uh, palm oil and palm oil that can't prove that it is uh, sustainable and uh, regenerative and not harmful to the orangutan populations uh, and not responsible for deforestation. So that's a huge part of their core ethos. And they're also a certified B Corporation, which is one of the highest corporation certifications you can have for being a mindful people, planet, animals um, uh, driven um, company, and uh, and I, there's just so many great things that actually we're going to pop a few exciting little products in the show notes today. Some of my favourites that I get from there again and again, like the amazing weatherproof stainless steel pegs. Uh, you can even buy these really cool shampoo and conditioner cubes now, the beauty cubes. So single little um, plastic free. Um, cubes that you can use, um, especially while traveling, super handy. Uh, if you're going camping or if you just want to cut your plastic, but you don't like the fact that bars tend to get all slimy and you feel like you're wasting half of it just on it sort of getting slimy and, and dissipating. These are all little single use. So you can keep them out of the shower and just take what you need into the shower. So they've got so many fantastic products and given Plastic Free July also kicks off today, July 1, I couldn't think of a better store to send you to, to uh, make the most of your plastic free uh, transition goals and 15% off for the whole month. Lotox19 is your code. I'm sorry. Yes, this is only for Australians Um, and it excludes shipping. That's the only thing, but you get 15% off in store on everything in there. Um, and obviously not valid if something's already discounted in the shop. It expires on the 31st of August, so you've got time to do your reconnaissance and get a bit of a shopping list together for what you need. Don't buy things you don't need, but if this is a time when you're thinking, gosh, I really want a water filter, but I just can't justify that full price, 15% off is a nice little chunk, so maybe this could be the time for you to uh, trade up 
and uh, trade out some of your household plastics for plastic-free options as well as all the wonderful things that they have in there. So enjoy the offer this month from Biome and please do enjoy this wonderful look at just how good community living could be if we plan smarter and better and, uh, and just imagine having agriculture around you and yet feeling like you live in a city. It's so exciting to me uh, what they've created. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. And uh, I, I, we came across your beautiful community and the design uh, aspects of it a couple of months ago. And I was like, gosh, it'd be really great to chat to Steve about how something like this even comes to be because it's not you don't just go oh yeah here's a nice spot and let's just build all of this stuff up there would have been many many challenges setbacks uh and opportunities that needed to be explored before actually going ahead um but before we talk about seren b i would love to just hear what your childhood was like just to get an idea of, of what kind of human has the mental capacity to dream something like this up. How does, how does the venture into believing something like this would be possible begin in life? Well, I grew up on a farm in Colorado mm-hmm. and generational uh, farmers where I'm the fourth generation of immigrants who came from Sweden. Uh, Three different branches of the family uh, came from Sweden. Um, And so I grew up uh, on the land, uh, understanding the food systems, um, and uh, uh, was, of course, as a child, uh, was not enthralled with the farm. And so as I uh, went to college, I could hardly wait to get away from uh, farming and, and that entire life, which I thought was a lot of work. And it, and it is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and so when you were in college, what did you study? Were, were you, um, cause I'm pretty sure it wasn't going to be agricultural, uh, agricultural economics, right? <laughs> it was probably the opposite. No, I went to the University of Colorado to, uh, study architecture. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, in my, First year, uh, summer, I was not planning to go back to the farm. And friends in the resorts of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado said, come on up. Uh, There's great uh, summer resorts. And uh, we'll arrange a job for you. And when I arrived, they said, boy, there's more kids returning every year. And the jobs aren't very plentiful for, for new people. But we have a job for you as a dishwasher in the nicest resort, and I'm sure something else will open. And I said, as long as I don't have to go back to the farm, that's fine. Uh, and so I, on the third night of washing dishes, the owner of the resort came back and asked if any of us had brought suits. And I was the only person who raised their hand. Uh, somehow mother taught me to always be prepared for everything. And so I had a dark suit. Um, and he said, put it on. I've hired the Mater D and I need you to, man the door tonight. Wow. I ended up being the maitre d' for the rest of the summer. And so that was my seduction into the hospitality industry. And I so love the- it. I actually started in the hospitality industry as a hostess. So really? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everyone at some point should work uh, in a restaurant because you really understand the variety of people and you have Agreed. to deal uh, from the people in the kitchen 
to the people that you're serving. It can be a complete range of society in a few moments. Mm, it's so, so true. It honestly is the first job I'm going to be, well, you know, once he's 18, uh, which is the legality here, um, that I will be strongly recommending to my son because just as you've said, you come across four seasons in one day. In fact, it happens in 10 minutes. You've got a difficult situation over there. You've got your best regular over there. You've got the dishwasher broken down over there. So it's problem solving. It's people welcoming. It's people diffusing. It's everything. And, uh, and it's so intense because it's relentless until closing time. That's right. It's just an incredible skill set to develop in life, I think, regardless of what you go on to do. Correct. Agreed. Mm. Uh, And so you're in this resort. How do you go from um, being an employee to a leader in the field of hospitality in Colorado? Well, I returned to the University of Colorado. And then when money was short at Christmas time, I thought, well, I'm an experienced major d'. I'll just drive down to Denver, which is about 20 miles, um, and, and, and get you know, a fine job. Well, and after two weeks, I humbly accepted a job as a busboy with Stouffer's Food Corporation. And Stouffer's had a lot of restaurants. They were opening the top of the Rockies in Denver. And I ended up being with Stouffer's for seven years. Uh, I, I, I went into management with them and then into their hotel opening team. And they moved me to Atlanta, Georgia uh, to open a hotel. And this was when Atlanta was just getting ready to soar. And I could feel it. I could tell it and had wonderful friends. And so after we opened the hotel, I stepped off the corporate treadmill and opened my own restaurant in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I built that company to 34 restaurants wow. over the next 22 years. Um, and uh, I was in the midst of doing that when uh, we bought a weekend farm. thought it was a great place to take our children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1991, they were three, five, and seven. Uh, so we just bought the farm on a whim on an afternoon drive. Beautiful. And, and do you think this was uh, when you had kids, was that you coming to start to realize some of the magic that comes from having a farm or having access to a farm? Well, initially it was just that whim and it was kind of a fun thing to do. And yeah. we're right on the edge of Atlanta. So I decided it was a good investment as well as I could please uh, the four uh, females in my life. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and then we rented the main house out. It was a 1905 farmhouse. And so we rented that out. And there was a shack in the back that had been built for farm laborers. And my wife fixed that in case we ever wanted to spend the night. Uh, you know, I imagine we'd come out a, a couple Saturday afternoons a month and pitter around, maybe get a, a little Shetland pony or something. Yeah, But in my amazement, it's where the entire family wanted to come every weekend, and we started stretching our weekends. Um, and so it was over those three years that I was uh, understanding the real value of connecting with nature and what that had meant to me as a child and seeing my children reacting to it. Mm. And they all wanted to come down to the shack where there were no toys except a puzzle for rainy days and to connect to nature. 
And in the city, we had a beautiful large home with pool and media room and matching Barbie cars. And we could walk two blocks to restaurants and the High Museum and Symphony Hall and three blocks the other way to the big city park and botanical garden. It was just this ideal house in an ideal location that we thought we would retire in. Mm. And yet everyone wanted to come to the shack. Yeah. That was my value shift over those three years. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And so you, I mean, there's, there's still a pretty big shift to then think about how you can grow that for a whole group of people beyond your own family. What was that process of thinking? Well, it's, you know, I, I call the various 90 degrees. I mean, mm. I had I'd, I'd gone from working for a corporation to owning my own company and building that. And then stepping totally off the treadmill. I mean, I stepped off the treadmill. We put organic farms in. Uh, and my hair was down to my shoulders. Uh, and so that was my real 90 degree turn away from, from a corporate business of my own, uh, to just stepping off the treadmill. Mm -hmm. And I was totally satisfied doing that, you know, gardening, cutting trails in the woods. And then by the time the kids got home from school, I was available. Yeah. Um, and we traveled in the summer and then in my seventh year of retirement, I became concerned about urban sprawl. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some uh, developers buying land nearby. There was uh, a forest right next to us being bulldozed. Uh, I thought it was for housing. And it turns out it was uh, actually a neighbor was putting in a pasture airstrip. But it was five weeks before I could get a hold of the, the owner. To, he was in Europe and I knew what was happening. And so in a panic, uh, I bought another 600 acres trying to protect. Mm. And so I realized that 900 acres in the path of urban sprawl really doesn't protect you. Yeah. And that began the investigation is what can we do uh, that led to the idea of developing a community. Um, initially, we thought we could draw, show a model that we could bring all the density into one area and save the majority. <clears throat> the countryside of England was actually our, our, our model because after World War II, they put some good land laws uh, in mm. so that all the development is in the little hamlets, villages, and towns, and buildings don't follow the roads out of town. Interesting. And so that was our real model that we were looking at. Uh, but then in that journey, we realized that models don't always pan out to affect the area that they're in. In fact, many times in real estate, it, it accelerates whatever you're trying to, to change. And so I spent next two years bringing 500 landowners together in the larger area. And these were pro-development, pro-preservationists for all various reasons. Um, and we were able to bring them together with 90 or 80% agreement that um, in a balanced growth, it was development as well as preservation. Uh, the 20% that didn't support us also didn't oppose us. They just stayed home. Mm. So you had a green light. Had a green light? Yeah. You, yes. I mean, oh. yeah. Well, exactly. So all of the politicians we had to deal with were totally supporting because we had built the groundswell. Uh, Amazing. Of, 
before it's first. And so, you know, you get the groundswell and then you have to construct it. What were some of the, the, um, the things that you brought into those initial planning sessions in terms of how you wanted things to be? Uh, because, I mean, the, there's infinite possibility, which often brings um, the idea of there being um, so many things to think about and then, you know, what do you focus on? Well, the first thing we did, and those 500 landowners, that they owned 40,000 acres. So that's the size that we're talking about. Wow. Let's see. Do you all use hectares? Uh, we use um, kilometers. Kilometers for, for acreage? For acreage. Well, no, we still use acres, yeah. Mm. You use acres, yeah. yeah. So 40,000 acres yeah. uh, was, was, was fair, fair sized. And... Um, we uh, it, transfer development rights. Do you know transfer development rights? No, no. Go for it. Explain. So transfer development rights is a legal entity, and our state did not have it, and we had to form that legislation and pass that through our state legislature, our, our, our state government. Um, but this is allows you to sever uh, development rights. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with se- severing water rights or mineral rights? No, not at all. You need to tell us right. everything. <laughs> okay, so uh, out west in the United States, they're used to severing mineral rights so that you can sell your mineral rights and somebody else can drill for a mineral. Gotcha. And gotcha. you still own the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so what development rights is, is you can sell the right to develop your property, mm-hmm. whatever the base entitlement might have been. Mm-hmm. And then that can be moved to another location within the designated area. So, and then attached to the DD or property, it says you can never develop housing on it. Mm-hmm. But it continue in any agricultural approved uh, use. Mm-hmm. So it could be equestrian, it can be timber, it can be farming, <clears throat> any of those things. It just cannot be housing. Okay, gotcha. And then another part, so you have to freeze the zoning. And so then where you want added density, and basically we were frozen at one unit to an acre. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do a dense little village to four units to an acre, or if you want to do mid-rise, like 36 units to an acre, you have to buy anything over one unit per acre. Wow. From a neighbor, or you have to have it on your own property that you transfer it for permanent preservation. Mm-hmm. And so that was the key for the entire area. Then for all of our historic roads, you have to have a 200-foot buffer. So that the area will look rural even after it's totally developed. Mm-hmm. And we have been able to show that we can put 20% more housing per square mile with this clustered density than Metro Atlanta and most U.S. cities have done uh, per square mile in the urban sprawl model. So we, we can actually put more housing in while we're saving 70% of the land. That's incredible, isn't it? Infrastructure costs 
are 40% to both install and uh, maintain in the future. Wow. That's really incredible. And, and so why do you, do you often get approached by other developers to try and uh, replicate the model or is that something? Absolutely. So we have starting a consulting f- uh, uh, firm mm-hmm. called Nigrant Placemaking. Yeah, And then every fall, we do a conference specifically for developers. It's two and a half days. It's five segments. And so we, you can, uh, we bring the government leaders in, and they can share how we convince them to change this. We bring all of the civil engineers and all the people that dealt with the planning uh, and how we did that. We bring teams of architects in that talk to the group on how we handle our architects and our design review boards. Uh, We bring community leaders in to talk about how we've created this culture. And then we bring bankers in to talk about the economics of it. Mm, Very smart. Two and a half days, it's really amazing. And uh, we've had many groups from Australia. Uh, In fact, we we limited to 50 people and... uh, uh, 50% 50% of them come from outside the United States. That's so encouraging, isn't it? I mean, that there I think are... we've had five different teams from Australia. How amazing. <clears throat> oh, I'm going to, um, I'll reach out afterwards and see who they were because it'd be incredible to promote the work they're doing here now that they have that information. Uh, there are Absolutely. a lot of people who live in cities who don't want to live away from people on like land on a property, just them, um, which is kind of the old model, right? Um, But to be able to have all the benefits of feeling close to lots of people and and the community that that brings, but so much land around you, it feels like this is a really utopian um, way to progress in the world of uh, developing, especially as the population grows. We think so, and it's catching on. So mm. anyone interested, you can go to our webpage at Serenby, S-E-R-E-N-B-E.com, mm-hmm. and then go to history, and then click on learn more, and it'll take you right to the Nigrant Placemaking and the conferences we do. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Um, and in terms of uh, construction of the buildings themselves, I'd imagine there was quite a lot of thought into the the materials used uh, and their uh, recyclability, their improvability over time. Have you got anything uh, that you would like to share on that front? Well, we we have a local um, certification uh, program, Mm -hmm. uh, which guarantees that they've been built uh, in uh, sustainable practices. Uh, are you familiar with LEED certification? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, this would be similar. It's called Earthcraft. Okay. Uh, and they actually uh, were doing this even before LEED uh, uh, became uh, in existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that really guarantees, for instance, that the uh, energy usage uh, of a typical house is reduced by around 30-35 percent uh, just if it's built well against what the normal is. Mm. Uh, we then uh, require geothermal uh, for all your heating and air conditioning yeah. and that reduces your demand by another 30-35 percent. Which uh, would be significant for Amer- North American winters. Oh yes and mm. so 
by reducing your energy demand by 65 to 70%, then it makes solar or wind or whatever else much more reasonable. So mm. for a 2,300 square foot house, if you've reduced it by that much, you only need one third of the panels. And most roofs for that size house have enough space you could accommodate it. And that makes it more reasonable because you've cut the, the cost uh, two thirds yeah. uh, by just reducing the demand. And so reducing the demand is the first thing people should be talking about when you're talking about alternative energy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, of course. You first have to reduce the demand. A hundred percent. Passive house um, technology was one of the other um, exciting um, things that I've come across recently talking to a couple of architects on the podcast. So there's just so many ways to do this now. It's about being brave and doing our research first and not just acting. I think often you just, you get the homeowner who's ready to build and they're just go, 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 go. And a little bit of restraint and some more research can mean these incredible shifts can be made. Um, yeah, really exciting stuff. The, the, the knowledge plus the technology is out there. Mm. And as far as knowledge, a lot of it is just going back, remembering a hundred years ago yeah. when we were not uh, energy hogs, uh, when we didn't have air conditioning, uh, when we didn't have uh, central heat, mm. uh, places were built much more responsibly. Mm. It's so true. A lot shifted in the 70s here in Australia. Um, where things were built really irresponsibly, irresponsibly and very cheaply. And uh, when those building codes changed, so did the hike up of needing air conditioning in the summer, heating in the winter. And we're a pretty mild climate. So if you build buildings right in Sydney, there should be very few days that you need either. That's so, right. Mm. That's right. Yeah. So um, what's it like to live in this community? And... Uh, do people from different socioeconomic backgrounds coexist well, or is it more of an affluent space? Is there space for everybody? I think it'd be interesting to dig into that a little. It's a complete mix. I mean, if you look, uh, you know, economically, we have a range. You know, we have a range of housing from rental to to, to mansions, if you will. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, conservatives and liberals. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a mix of races. We have uh, uh, mix of sexual orientation, uh, you, you name the diversity, um, and, and we're a real town, which is a hundred years ago, you just saw people, yeah. uh, you know, and it was a variety ages from, fr from babies being born to elderly people. Yeah. Amazing. And do you think that that coexistence is a peaceful one because of the common desire to live in a place like that? Well, I believe it is because we have built um, a variety of houses and housing types. Uh, it is reminiscent to many people of, of villages of the past. Yeah. Um, and it's a big piece of the way we have built it. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> We have wandering roads that is a collection of omega shapes, uh, but we have direct paths that connect everything. So it's generally a lot easier to get places by foot than it is by car. Uh -huh. 
we have a requirement of front porches on every house and they have to be large enough. They have to be at least eight feet wide, which is the size that you need for a room, if you will. Yep. Uh, and they're pulled close to the sidewalk. So if people are out walking their dogs, strolling their baby, just taking a morning or evening stroll, uh, you're going to encounter neighbors sitting on their porch and you're going to wave. And, and so it's that person that you might not visit their home or go see them, but you'll have a two-minute conversation uh, yeah. over, the, uh, over the, the porch rail. Um, we put our mail stations in places where people are going to gather for other reasons, next to the coffee shop, next to the park with the trampoline. And so you just, it's, it's those accidental collisions, yep. uh, neighbors, uh, that create uh, a friendships, business partners, uh, and all these things create that, that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and when we feel more connected to each other, there's less of a need for people to focus on feeling separate and divided. You know, I think I love that term accidental collision. That to me is perfection because you can quite successfully in most urban spaces go through your day without colliding with anyone. I mean, these days with online shopping now, you can get everything delivered. You don't have to talk to a single soul. And for me, that is one of the key reasons we become more divided as a society without the reminder constantly to smile at a cute dog or a baby or have a quick chat with someone at the post office queue. You know, those are, those can't be underestimated, I believe, uh, for, for what they do for us all as a collective. And it's amazing how contagious it is. Yes, yes. People come here and they're just amazed at how everyone's waving and saying hello and looking in your eye. And 24 hours later, they're doing the same thing. And they're, they're taken by surprise. Yeah. How quickly this so affects them. is there any crime ever? There isn't. Right. Interesting. Our, our, our best is as in the early days, there was a crime prevention people came. The neighbors thought we needed to do that. Here we are out in the country. And, and uh, they, they say, well, we, we, we cased the place for three times before we ever came here. And they said, you're already doing what we try to encourage everyone to do. They said, each time we came to sort of stake the place out, someone greeted us. They asked us if they could help us. They said, we felt so seen that no one would dare do anything here. <laughs> That's so interesting. And, and, so, and yet, uh, no, sorry. Um, so in terms of, so there's no crime. There's no, um, there's no one particular group that lives there. So everyone coexists depending on race, political persuasion, everything, sexual orientation. Uh, it's, uh, it's been described as a microcosmic utopia. And I got to say, it really does sound like it. Is there anything about the design that you feel you want to improve? Well, here, here's, you know, I, I want to pick up on that point because utopia sounds like something hard to attain. Uh-huh, yeah. And I think about this woman uh, here several months ago, and she's in her 60s, and she recognized me on a Friday afternoon and shared with me that uh, they had come, they, they were from Boston, 
and they were planning to retire in the next two years. And so they had a list of places they wanted to check out that they might want to move to. Yeah. And we were on that list. And so they were there that weekend to check us out. And so we just chatted and good luck and what have you. And so on Sunday, she saw me again and she said, let me ask you, is this place for real? <laughs> and, and I said, well, what have you seen in the last 48 hours that makes you ask that question? She says, well, we saw children running without parents. Uh, we saw neighbors visiting over the uh, front porch rail. Uh, we saw two places where people were obviously carrying food to a neighbor's house. And she went on on these various simple things. And so this is a woman in, their, in her 60s. And so I said, well, where did you grow up? And she told me the town in Pennsylvania. And, and I said, well, all these things you've just mentioned to me, how many of those are different than how you grew up 50 years ago? And she looked at me dumbfounded with this very sobering face. And she said, absolutely nothing. Yeah. And I said, isn't it sad that these simple civil kindnesses of neighbors to neighbor are so unusual that we think when you observe this, that it's a utopia. Yeah. And that's the sad state of affairs in America. And I believe all over the world. We have been so insular and into ourselves that we've forgotten the joy of connecting with each other. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. How special is that, that you've been able to create that and then allow others to emulate that in right. the developing work they're doing? I think that's the key. You don't want to be a one-off you know, anomaly. You want this everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, in terms of uh, us starting to recreate this, it feels like in talking um, there are a lot of things that personally I do because I just believe connecting with other humans is really important. And as soon as I have a week in my diary where it doesn't look like I've got much on socially, I book a friend, we go for a walk, you know, making time for connection in busy, big cities that weren't built in the um, purposeful way that you've built Seren B. Um, I, I think, you know, what are some of your uh, calls to action that people should be taking today and from today to not wait until there's a perfect community that's been built out of town for them, but to simply start living like 50 years ago, because it's not hard. We actually just have to decide we want to do it, right? Well, what I often say is we need to worry about our own backyard. Uh, it's a popular thing now to point our figure and think that our personal miseries, the miseries of our community are because of what someone else have done to us, whether it's government, whether it's big companies, it's always somebody else's problem. Well, if you can't do anything about them, why spend your time worrying about it? Mm. Spend your time worrying about what you can do. And that's, that's what I did when, you know, when, when I sold the company, it was like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on too many committees. I'm trying to make a difference and I don't feel I'm doing much. Yeah. I can go to the country and put my arms around my own family, grow our own food and, and, and create that perfect life for my unit. Uh, <clears throat> now, 
to my surprise then, that my backyard then became the 40,000 acres because I wanted to, I knew I couldn't protect my backyard if I didn't protect my immediate area. Mm. And now we're having influence in places all over the world. Yeah. So I think everyone would just worry, maybe it's just growing food for your family on your back deck or your backyard. For a few, they're neighborhood activists, that their backyard is their neighborhood. For a few, it's the city. For fewer, it's the state. For few, the nation, and very few, the world. But I identify the backyard is where can you affect change? And if we each focused on where we can create change, then we'll have a very different society as our, all, all of our backyards uh, connect. Whether you're a radio host or a blog or... That's, that's your neighborhood. That's your backyard. Yeah. And you can affect those people. And so that's where we start. That's a beautiful, beautiful reminder for us all. Steve, thank you so much. I think it's so, such a special place you've created. And we have put all the links in the show notes to help people connect to this beautiful place. Can we come visit as tourists? Is this? Um, shall, we, yeah? shall we pull the calendars out and decide the time? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> we have We have live theater uh, 40-some weeks a year. We have live ballet uh, all outside, and it's it's, it's nationally. It's one of the national uh, uh, performances. Uh, We have now five restaurants, a country inn, uh, shops. Uh, You can just come have a grand time. And, uh, of course, now it's our summer, and we have a summer camp, so you can come and the kids will be occupied all day while you have your massages or go horseback riding or walk in the woods. <laughs> oh, I'm liking the sound of that. You're a good salesman, Steve. <laughs> How fantastic. No, I think it's, you know, it, it comes, I love that you've, re, you've reminded us that it all starts in our backyard and our backyard is simply our sphere of influence. But also that if we feel a bit lost, I mean, there couldn't be anything better than going and visiting people who are doing it well as the stern reminder for ourselves in our own lives of what it could be. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you and look forward to your visit. <laughs> I will be there in the next couple of years. I can guarantee okay. that. Okay, we're counting on it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show. You're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Thank you.